in a Genesis 19. And uh, there's a lot more here than, than what may meet the eye, which has sort of been our, our, what we've discovered about studying the book of Genesis. Uh, our goal here is to eventually, when we get done to chapter 20, it's about 12 weeks from now at this rate, uh, we'll take a break. I think we've been in Genesis most of the year, uh, September. So, um, and this, I think it's our third year going through it too. So, um, so well, let's see if we can finish the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is the the more grotesque part of it. Um, but uh, let's see if we can tackle it. So let's start in verse 27 of Genesis 19. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of valley. He looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, and he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is owed, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So he made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn born a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of Ammonites to this day. Well, so the story here in chapters 18 and 19, the camera looks at Abraham and then it looks at Lot and it goes back and forth. And so we see that here. Um, Lot and them have fled to Zoar, as we're reminded here in the text. And the camera is back to Abraham. His, his, his response is quite interesting. Remember that the main plot of these chapters, from chapter 12 really to, to the rest of, of, of the book, but really here where we're at, is God's covenant with Abraham. And the last time we saw Abraham, he was interceding on behalf of a godless city. Remember that it comes down to if there's 10 people, 10 righteous people, will you withhold your judgments? And so Abraham wakes up, and what does he see in the distance? He sees smoke arising. And what a contrast, right? While Abraham is sleeping, he's resting. Lot is there uh, trying to pacify a mob and uh, trying to escape the judgment of God. What, what a contrast of nights here. And we're going to see some more contrast uh, later on. Uh, that word smoke, is a, it's a rare Hebrew word. Um, one commentator says this, quote, it, it denotes dense vapors rising from the firing of lime or clay. The smoke is dense like that which comes from a burning kiln. So, so this is a little campfire here. Um, very evident that, that something had happened. And so verse 29 is, is, is the summary of the entire Sodom narrative. Uh, he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had, had lived. Notice here, the emphasis is on God's active role. 
And this is the thing that, you know, I, I recommended the one Disney Plus little episode. Um, all that's fine if, if you find natural explanations for some of these events. I don't have a problem with that. However, saying that this is a natural cause without the divine creator involved doesn't work for me. For example, uh, some people try to say that the ten plagues in Egypt were caused by a volcano, you know, hundreds of miles down, down the road. Let's just say that's true. Well, if you're Moses and you say, if you don't let my people go, some bad things are going to happen, and the next day bad things happen— you're going to say, yes, those are natural causes. Yes. You're also going to say, this is more than natural causes, right? If I said, hey, look, if you do this, you're going to be struck dead by lightning and you get struck dead by lightning, right? You could say, well, of course, that's a natural cause. At the same time, the prediction, you're going to get struck dead by lightning, it suggests more than just natural causes. Same thing with Solomon and Gomorrah. If the angels come down and say, you got to get out of here, this place is going to be destroyed, and it gets destroyed. It's more than natural causes. And you notice two things there in verse 29. God both destroyed and God remembered. Both are vital in, in understanding the judgment of God. God's wrath is always kindled by his covenant, his covenantal grace. He overthrew the cities, but he remembered Abraham. He remembered the promises he made to Abraham. All right, so both, both are, are important. Well, let's bring the camera back to, to Lot here, starting in, in verse 30. Um, we should note here that this is the end of the Lot narrative. We never meet him again in narrative form. Now, he'll, I'll give you examples where he shows up in, in the Bible. At least his name shows up. Um, but this is it, and, and what a terrible way to end your story, right? Uh, I, I mean, you, you could probably think of movies you've watched. There's a side character who they meet their end, whether, you know, they die or they just, you know, walk off the story. And you think, man, what a terrible way for your story to end, right? That's a lot here. I mean, what, if, if, if Sodom wasn't bad enough, there is this that happens outside of Zoar in, in a cave. Um, now, the main purpose we have here is to explain the origins of the Ammonites and the Moabites, now, remember that, that the stories here are being carried orally up to the time of Moses. Moses is likely the first and primary author of the Pentateuch, likely is, is edited, uh, and, and some rather later uh, writers come later. But so, so uh, as they're going out into the wilderness during the Exodus, they encounter the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they would have said, oh, we, we know where their people come from, right? And a lot of Genesis does that. Go back to the Table of Nations. Is it explains where are all these nations they're encountering in the wilderness, where do they come from? When they go into the Canaanites and they meet the Jerichoites and everyone else, Genesis provides for them a cultural historical context for them to understand um, the people they, they are encountering. So you see there in verse 30, they are in Zoar. Now, remember that the angel told Lot and his family, go to the hills. Remember, we talked about the hills as a place of refuge. Right? And you remember what Lot said? He goes, yeah, I could go there, but I could go to Zoar. You remember Zoar was, was preserved for judgment. But Zoar, remember, means insignificant city, the little city. And it's like he's, tra he's training. Well, I get it. Sodom is really, really bad. But, but I was managing fine until it got too large. If I go to Zoar, I'd be fine. Well, something seems to, to have happened here. Um, 
so much so that he has to flee. That word afraid is used in verse 30. The text doesn't tell us why he is afraid. Um, and one wonders if he is seeing the same pattern at Zoar that he witnessed in Sodom. But it doesn't tell us, just that he became afraid, so afraid that he was ready to flee again. And here he flees to, to the caves. And in the Hebrew, it, it, it says the cave, signifying that it was a prominent landmarker. You know, um, when, when I was in Breckenridge County, down the road from, from the Parsons where we lived, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, there was this giant rock. I mean, it was just a big old giant rock, and someone actually lived at the top of it. It was a huge rock. And I had heard for months, everyone say this term, and I, I don't know where it was. I was in the new guys, an outsider, till one day we drove by it, and I realized that's what they're talking about, right? You never went out and said, if you go out on, on 105, go until it ends, and then it comes out this road, you're heading towards Rough River, you're going to come across a big old rock. They didn't say that. They called it by the name, right? And there was a real estate agent out in the front of it, and the lady that ran that lived at, at, at the top of that rock. Uh, same sort of thing here. It's, it, it seems to be a prominent location that the readers would have understood where, where it was. Um, uh, and it's striking that Lot and his family have gone from farming life to city life. Both examples, they are prominent, right? They, they, have, they have so much property, domesticated animals, they have, they have to split from Abraham. And then when he splits, he seems to trade it all in for city living. Um, so he's living up in the Beverly Hills of Sodom. And he ends up trading all of that to now he is living in a cave. Now, there is something, uh, not to mention he's a widower. There is something that, that struck out to me when I was thinking about this text. Is caves show up all the time in the Bible, right? You and I probably wouldn't think much about living in a cave, but caves show up all the time. Think of, here's Lot. Abraham later buys a field with a cave in it to bury his wife. That's in Genesis 23. Jacob requested to be buried in that field cave near his, his mother. It's Genesis 49. Um, five kings that warred against Joshua in Joshua 10, I believe it is. You remember what Joshua does? They flee to a cave. Remember what he does? He takes a big old rock and he covers it up and then they can't escape. I mean, that's like, I, that, 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 that's like being buried alive. I mean, literally, I mean, I guess you are being buried alive. That's like one of my biggest fears in life, you know, being be buried, buried alive. Um, David, you remember, hid in a cave when Saul was hunting him and, 1 Samuel 22 to 24. Elijah fled to the cave of Mount Sinai, 1 Kings 18. Of course, Jesus himself is placed in a tomb, which is like, like a cave. They're everywhere. And from, so I did a little, little study of it briefly. So this isn't exhaustive. But from what I can tell, I took the word cave here, used in Genesis 19, and looked at all the instances it's used in the, in, in the Old Testament. Here's what I've come, come to. In the Bible, uh, caves are places of refuge. They're places of escape. And one of two things you will find there, either the grace of God or the judgment of God. Let me give you examples of the grace of God. This is David in Psalm 57, a miktam of David. Miktam is probably a musical note. I don't know anything about music, so I don't know what that could be describing there. So let's just roll with it. Notice it's when he fled from Saul in the cave. And notice what David described. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. Notice there, he's, he's in a cave hiding, but he finds his true refuge in God. And the two are, are very much connected. We see the same thing in Psalm 142. One, again, it's a masculine of David, another musical note, when he was in the cave. Again, similar context to, to Saul. We talked about it last year in 1 Samuel. 
a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Again, he's, he, he's come to a cave. He's come to a place of refuge. What does he find there? Is he, he finds grace. He finds grace in the arms of the shepherd and in the wings of his creator. Others find judgment. Again, we mentioned the, the ten kings of Joshua. Or we can turn to Isaiah 2. People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord. And clearly you see that, that if this is your last place of rescue, your last place of shelter, God will find you even there. That's the message. Ezekiel thirty three twenty seven say to this say this to them. This is the Lord of God. As I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. Whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in strongholds in the cave shall die by pestilence. Uh, I've yet to find this QWERTY quote this in the Veggie Tales episode. But but you see here that um, again the message is wherever you are, the judgment of God will fall upon you. Now, here's the real question I think we should be asking ourselves. Why doesn't Lot return to Abraham? That would make sense, right? I mean, look, I've been in a situation where we are really worried about where are we going to live? You know, we had to make some really quick decisions. It's one of the reasons why when we came here from the time you all voted to the time we actually launched officially here was six weeks. There's a couple of reasons for that. One was uh, I was... I was content at the ministry position I was at. I was an interim pastor. We understood it was temporary. We love those people there and still do. So, you know, I wasn't going to go and say, hey, by the way, East Frankfurt called. See ya, right? We weren't going to do that. I did something similar to Greenup, did four weeks there. And, uh, the other reason was we knew what it was like to be in a rush to find a place to live. It's a scary thing to do. But one of the things that man and I know to this day, that if, if the worst were to happen, there are people in our lives that if we had to just, just to sleep the night, We'd be able to, right? Um, and Lot presumably has that, but he doesn't do it. And I was trying to think, why wouldn't Lot do that? And I'm thinking as a guy, I kind of understand that too, don't, don't you? It's, you think Lot really, again, which is sanctified, you know, sort of thinking here. You think Lot uh, or any man would want to return to his uncle that he separated from. And he went to his choice land that he thought was the Garden of Eden. Remember the language way back. And he comes back with his tail stuck between his legs. Let me tell you, men don't like doing that. For the same reason that I went to save a lot the other day to get Alfredo. We're going to have fettuccine. It's just me and Lodge at the house. We're going to have fettuccine Alfredo's, what he loves. And uh, they didn't have Alfredo sauce. Did I ask if they had an Alfredo sauce? No, because the way I look at it, if I can't find the Alfredo sauce, you don't deserve my money for the Alfredo sauce. Can I get an amen from all the men, right? Well, that's what I sort of wonder what is really happening here. He's the one that insisted on separating. So, you know, maybe he thinks he can't go back, but, but I, I don't know. Well, while they're out in the cave, here we go. His daughters concoct a wild plan to procreate. Remember, they were engaged. Remember, the lot goes to their fiancés and says, hey, you know, why don't you leave with us? Remember, they laughed at Lot. They thought he was joking. Now, some commentators suggest that from the perspective of his daughters, they assume they are literally the last three people on the face of the earth. If you think about it, remember that now, now the earth is, is economically flat, right? That I could right now speak to someone in a third world country 
right? Trade, it, it, the more trade expands, the smaller the world gets. And this has been true throughout human history. You don't have that at this time. They look around and say, every city we've ever known, Sodom, Gomorrah, and all these, we're all gone except Zoar. Right? And we just fled Zoar. Are we like the last people on earth here, right? And I was thinking like the old joke, like, I wouldn't be near you if we were the last people on earth, right? Well, now they may be actually thinking that. And I don't know if that's true or not. Some commentators su suggest it. Um, one thing that does stick out to me is the lengths most women will go to to fulfill their good and godly desire to have children. But in, in my experience of ministry, I've seen way too many women take shortcuts to reach that, that thing. Sort of like we talked about Sunday morning. A good thing turns into a God thing. And in order to get to that good thing, we bypassed obedience. And I've seen plenty of examples of that. It's, it's heartbreaking. One in particular I, I'm thinking of is, is a young lady who, who, who thought, because he slept, sleeps with me, he must love me. And then couldn't believe that he would break up with her so easily and just be done with her. And I said, here's, here's the real problem. Not the decisions you've made. We can address that. It's the decision you're about to make. She was in college, about to go to college. I said, the first guy that winks at you, you're going to make the same compromises, believe in the same lies. And sure enough, she calls me six months later. I thought he loved me. Why would he sleep with me? He doesn't love me. Because men aren't women, for one. Men have always been able to separate love from intimacy. I mean, it's not that hard. I mean, prostitution has been around forever. It's not that difficult to do. But she wanted a good thing, intimacy, and to be loved, and ultimately children. But she was going to bypass all this other stuff. So here, here what lots of children want are good things, kids, right? To be fruitful, multiply, is in Genesis multiple times. But it's going about it in an ungodly and dangerous way. And what you get then are generations of conflict between the people of God, the Moabites and Ammonites, all because of the shortcut. Tolkien in Lord of the Rings says shortcuts make long delays. That's exactly what it is that you, you, you are getting here. Um, now, starting in verse 31, uh, I want you to notice all the callbacks. There's one of the things that stuck out with, with me in the slow study of Genesis we've had is how often the, the writer keeps reminding you we've seen the story over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 31, notice they say our father's getting old. Now, can you think of a story in Genesis thus far about intimacy and age? Let's think of one. And just, just think of a scenario. Let's say you have an older couple beyond the ability to have children. And let's say the wife thinks I am beyond the age of having kids. Here is my maidservant, my slave. It's the same narrative, isn't it? What the daughters are saying is, our fathers are getting, our fathers are getting old, and we're getting older as we, you know, now. You know, we have, you know, you know, we, we can't start over and everything and find a fiance. They may all be gone. So let's hurry this up. Let's take this shortcut. It's a similar story, and it's the same same word. So, um, so they fear that age will rob them of children. Now remember, the context of this story is how God will overcome the age of Abraham and Sarah to bless them with children. That's the broader narrative. Now, it's easy to get distracted by these, you know, plot B and C, but the main story right now is God has promised land and lineage to Abraham and Sarah, and it seems impossible. They are sojourners in the land of Canaan, and they are beyond the age of childbearing. 
it would take a genuine miracle of God to fulfill that promise. He's about to do it in the very next chapter. So it's no accident that we get this narrative about age and childbearing. The writer is saying, don't forget this story. And they're making the same, same mistake. Um, uh, verse 32, notice there, come let us. That sound familiar? That phrase is used four times in the book of Genesis. Once here, three times in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, right? Remember, that's, that's the Trinitarian language there at the end, God mocking them, you know. Remember, God has to, they, they make this big tower that's supposed to impress everyone, and God's like, I could better come down there. I can't hardly see it from up here. It's so small, right? And so, come, let, let's go down there. Come on, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, don't be able to talk to each other, you know, any, any other. But uh, that language of, of come, let us, it's the same language of the Tower of Babel because it's, it's the same mindset. Let's create for ourselves our own Eden. So this cave, which is supposed to be a place of refuge, has become a place of judgment like Babel. They've left Sodom, but Sodom hasn't left them at all. This is the sort of thing you would see in Sodom. Because remember, what is it that they're they're doing here? They're doing exactly what their father tried to do to them. Their their father tried to exchange them to strange men. They have now taken their father and handed him over to strange women. He's unaware of anything that's going on. So what is supposed to be a place of refuge is turned into a place of of judgment. And then in verse 32, what is the tool by which they, 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 they use against them? It's wine. Now, what is wine? Now, I'm not an expert on this because I'm not much of a drinker. Uh, I'm trying it off sugary drinks. Uh, by the way, uh, Cherry Dr. Pepper looks very similar to Cherry Dr. Pepper Zero. I know that because I accidentally bought four 12-packs of Cherry Dr. Pepper because it was four for $12. When I was trying to get the zero, I'm trying to get off sugar. So I won't be getting off sugar anytime soon. Okay. If you would like, if you like cherry Dr. Pepper, I've got 12 of them right there waiting to be put in my refrigerator. So you can take, take one or two home with you. Um, but wine comes from fruit, right? Grapes. Now, let's think about the story of the Bible. Can you think of any instances thus far where there are trees? where there are fruits, and where there is either the grace of God or the judgment of God. Yeah. You go look at the Garden of Eden, right? Fruit of the tree, right? That that either leads to life or leads to death, right? There's your two options. And that becomes the pattern. In Genesis 13, you remember, Abraham goes and he plants a tree, the Oak of Mamre, remember? And there he has the altar. He builds an altar to the Lord. And there he meets God. In chapter 18, right, remember the... the, uh, Yahweh and the two angels come to hang out with, with Abraham. And where does Abraham send them? Go rest under the tree. When you see a tree or a plant or something, and, and it, it very likely is going to signify something important. So with Abraham, we see the grace of God everywhere. right? So, so it becomes a tree of life for him. The oak of memory, later the, the, the tree of shade in, in chapter 18. 
or it can be the judgment of God. Again, Genesis 3, you get the knowledge, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and in Genesis 9, remember the story of Noah. What does Noah do? He gets off the ark made of wood, a tree, right? So that becomes a means of grace. He gets off the ark and he plants a vineyard, a garden. And what does he do? What should be a place of refuge and rest, remember Noah means rest, he turns it into a place of judgment. And what happens there when Noah gets drunk? He gets abused by his son. Now, there's a lot of debate, and we looked at it a long, long time ago. Some say it was a homosexual act with Ham and his father. Some suggest it was an incestuous act between Ham and his mother. Some say it was, it was other things. Regardless, there seems to be sexual overtones, at the very least, in the context of Noah being drunk and his son. Here, we have another father drunk after an act of judgment by which God redeemed a people. Remember, we compared the ark and Sodom. Very similar stories. And what happens afterwards is an incestuous relationship involving drunkenness. It's the, it's the same story yet again. We, we, we keep coming across this. In verse 33, we see the word offspring. Is that the word y'all have? Does anyone have seed? Firstborn. Firstborn. All right, that, that, that'll work too. It's the same word as Genesis 3.15. The seed, offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. By the way, it's the same word in creation story uh, as well, Genesis 1. But Genesis 3.15 is, is the big verse in the Bible, particularly in Genesis. It's the battle of the seeds. And so what we have here then is, is uh, the offspring of his first daughter, unnamed, the offspring of the second daughter, again, unnamed. So what we have then is what's supposed to be good seed, lot, of the line of Abraham, right? Is bad seed. And we've gotten that with Abraham so far. The son of promise, you think he finally came in Ishmael. Going to be bad seed. It's going to be the Ishmaelites that, that enslaves Joseph. It's, it's the sins of Esau that's going to fight against the Edomites. They're going to fight against Israel. The Moabites and Ammonites are going to be pest to Israel. It's this battle of the seeds. So you have what are clearly bad seeds. Here it's the, in, in Genesis, the Egyptians and the Babylonians. It's, it's the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Ishmaelites and all of them. And you're supposed to have good seed. That's the Israelites. But what do you find with the Israelites? They're not very good people either. Right? And so this is, this continues that narrative of the battle of, of the seeds. And in verse 33, again, so, so it says he did not know what his daughter was doing. A couple of things to consider here. First of all, this may be a sarcastic comment from the narrator, if that's the right term. Throughout Genesis, to know is a euphemism for intimacy that produces children. And I've given you all those examples in Genesis. Adam knew his wife. Cain knew his wife. Seth knew his wife. Oh, there's all those examples. Here, Lot did not know his wife. Lot did not know his daughter. Right? It's almost like a sarcastic comment, isn't it? Maybe, maybe we're reading into it, but I think others have seen this. He, he, he didn't know what was happening. It still produces children, right? But another thing here is, is this is sexual assault, isn't it? You put this story on a college campus. It's rape. Now, it's women abusing a man. Now, later, we'll see the opposite in Genesis. Here, it's women abusing a man. That a man becomes a means 
to their end. Their end isn't pleasure, which usually is the issue with men. It's procreation. But he becomes a means to it. So to have relations with someone without consent is, by modern terms, sexual assault. Again, this is the opposite of what Lot tried. Lot offered his daughters for rape. Now Lot's daughters receive from Lot relations. But they, so instead of they being raped by strange men, Lot is raped by his own daughters. Well, in verse 34, the older now comes to the younger, affirms that she's lived up to her end of the bargain, and now expects the younger to, to live up to her end of the bargain, right? And so in verse 35, you, you, you get the same story, don't you? Um, it, 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 you know, she, she goes and gets him drunk. Now, it makes you wonder, where's all this wine coming from, right? I mean, they, they can't afford any more gas, right? They're, 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 they're stuck, you know, they can't afford rent. They're just living out in the cave. They got wine everywhere. Let me tell you something I've learned. Look, I know what it takes to raise children financially. And I've also seen what it costs to buy a pack of beer. I have no idea how people afford it. No idea. I don't know what it costs to go to a bar. Never tried it, right? But I can imagine it costs more to get a few beers at a bar than it would to cost what it gets a, you know, a 12-ounce Coca-Cola at Zaxby's. And that is way too much. Now, I'm not picking on Zaxby's, but anybody, two bucks for this? Yeah, I'm getting a refill, and I'm going to take one home, okay? It don't cost me 12 bucks for this. It shouldn't cost more than 50 cents, right? But anyway, sorry. Sorry for the rent. Right, it's alcohol, probably like $3,000 or something. It's amazing what it would have cost. Same, same thing with cigarettes, right? How do people afford these things? But one thing I've learned, they will, Right? There is never in the history of man a shortage of alcohol. You can ban it like we tried, or you can promote it like we're trying. There is never a shortage of alcohol. So no matter how poor you are living in a cave, you can get access to alcohol, right? That, that's my conclusion of, 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 that, of this story, right? You can't get anything else, but you, you can get you some, some alcohol. Um, but you do notice it's the same exact story there in verse 35. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose, lay with him. He did not know when she laid down or when she he, he arose. So it's verbatim, isn't it? Again, in the Bible, we see this pattern, a retelling of the same story. We've already seen that there, the story of Noah, the story of Abraham and Sarah. We, we've seen the same pattern over and over again. One generation doesn't learn from the previous. And those who witness the mistakes of one are often prone to repeat the same exact thing. Um, and by the way, the Sodom story we saw will be repeated the Benjaminites in Judges 19. Abraham, remember in chapter 12, lied about his wife? Guess what Abraham's about to do in chapter 20? Lie about his wife and has to make a covenant with Abimelech. Well, verse 36 to 38, we, we get that they are impregnated. So thus both daughters... Of Lot. By the way, notice that phrase, daughters of Lot. Something like that's going to come back later. Became pregnant by their father. Firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Um, now, let's, let's just pause here and, and, and think about the context, what, what we have here. In the previous chapter, previous chapters, we, we meet an, an aging woman who wants children but can't, no matter how often she tries. In this chapter, we meet wicked women who seemingly only try for one night 
and get pregnant quite easily. You can see where this is going, isn't it? I still remember when, when my wife was uh, first job as a photographer. There were two women there. One was unmarried, did not want to have kids, gets pregnant, thinks it's this guy's the, the father, you know, has all these baby showers, the family, everything. Come to find out after the baby's born, it's not him. She goes, well, I'd have to think about who it was. It must be this other guy. Turns out it's this other guy. And then she has another coworker, female, married, Christian. We went to a revival with them once. And they're trying and trying and trying and trying. And finally get pregnant when Manna gets pregnant and loses the baby. You know, the, 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 the frustrations that are there. So here, 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 here so basically, you essentially have three women who are either pregnant or just had a baby. One doesn't want a child and has one. No problems, healthy baby. The other desires a child and is doing the calendar thing, you know, doing everything necessary. Finally gets pregnant. The child isn't able to survive. And then there's my wife and I. We were not not trying, right? We weren't trying hard to have a baby. We weren't not trying not to have a baby. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, um, you know, we, we just found out she was pregnant one day, and hooray, we're excited. We're going to have a little baby boy. And man, it, it's really hard, isn't it? Sometimes the righteous do seem to prosper. And we get a story like this. There's Sarah to the point that she's laughing in derision the thought she'll ever have a baby, out of frustration. Here's the unnamed daughters, barely try. Oh, what a fallen world we live in. Now, to be clear, the Bible does condemn incest. But in this context, Leviticus 18.7, shall not uncover the nakedness of, of your father. By the way, that language of uncover the nakedness may help us understand the Ham story. Remember that the, his brothers cover the nakedness of, of their father. That's why they think there's sexual overtones there. Throughout the Bible, we, we come across several examples of incest. Um, we're not going to look at all of them. Let's see if we can reference some Ham, Genesis 9, probably 1. Abraham's brother Nahor marries his niece Melka, Genesis 11. Esau marries his cousin Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael. Jacob marries his cousin Leah and Rachel, who were the daughters of his uncle on his mother's side. I know you're confused. Reuben had relations with his father's concubine. Judah mistook his daughter-in-law Tamar for a prostitute. That's going to be fun when we get there. Amnon, David's... So all those are in Genesis. Just in Genesis, well, let's look at one other, one or two others, because I have to do with David since we're looking at David on Sunday mornings. Amnon, David's eldest son and heir to the throne, uh, assaults his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, his half-brother, responds by killing him. Later, Absalom, in, in, in an effort to show he's the real man, um, sleeps with David's concubines when he kicks his father out of, out of his palace. Now, I don't know what you're thinking. Like, okay, that happens back then. I think you're really missing the point. Um, sexual deviancy is all over chapter 19. And it's all over the Bible because it's all over the world to this day. Most, I don't, I don't know about most, so I can't look at statistics, but what do you think of the percentage of, of assault cases, particularly involving children, are from family members? Right? This isn't just something that happened in a cave. I'm glad it's over with. Sexual deviancy is everywhere around us. And the pornographic world has only made it worse. Moab in verse 37 means of the father. So it's a play on the story. Uh, whenever you see A-B in the Bible, in Hebrew Bible, 
uh, it likely uh, is the root of father. So Abraham, um, um, Abba, father, right? Abba, A-B. The Hebrew is A-V, but when it comes to English, it's A-B. Um, so Moab, uh, of the father. Verse 38, um, Ben-Ami means son of my kinsmen or son of my people. Uh, whenever you see B-E-N, Ben, in, in English, Benjamin, Benjamin, um, uh, uh, it means son. Bar means son too in Hebrew, so Bar Mitzvah, son of the covenant. Uh, Barnabas, Barabbas, uh, it means son. Um, so Ben Ami, son of my people, son of my, my kinsmen. And so again, you're, 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 you're an Israelite in the wilderness and you're hearing these stories, you're learning these stories and you come across the Moabites. What's going to come, come to your mind? Ah, they're the sons of Lot. In fact, that's exactly what we find. Deuteronomy 2, notice there. Uh, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle for I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I have given our to the people of Lot for possession. In there? Don't forget. Don't forget their story. Don't forget who they really are. Same thing at Deuteronomy 2.19. When you approach the territory of people of Ammon, for I will not give uh, you the land of the people of Ammon as possession because I have given it to the sons of Lot. It's the same, same sort of language. In Psalms, for they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. Moab and the Hagrites, Gibbon and Ammon and Amalek. We, we, we meet the Amalekites next to us, don't we? The Amalekites and David and all that. Asher also has joined them. They are strong. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Moab and Ammon. Don't forget this story. Who they are. Of course, there's lessons we take from it. Hopefully we've looked at some, but don't forget their story. Well, um, the Moabites and Ammonites are pests for Israel, often at war. So you got the sons of Lot versus the sons of Abraham. One thing to note in the Bible, they, they are usually portrayed as idolaters. It's typical of the Canaanites. Uh, so you get in Judges 10, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, the three pests, right? And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Notice he said, you have trade, the liberating and redeeming God for the God of the offspring of, 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 of incestuous relationships. Moab and Ben-Ami are both the sons and grandsons of Lot. Let that sink in for a minute. If, if you think about it too much, you'll be confused. First Kings 11, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. On the mountain, noticed. Remember our study of Genesis, east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the Garden of Eden. It's supposed to be. The sanctuary, God is there. So if you go east of, of Eden, you're going away from the Lord. He's going to build these high places. Solomon is in of his, of, of, his, of his tenure when he starts to go away from the Lord. He, of course, is going to go east of the garden. What is it? And, and, and he goes to the gods of Moabites and Ammonites, idolaters. So what do we do with this? Well, let's briefly, we're running out of time. We turn to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth 1. Hopefully you already know where we're going here. Everything we've seen about the Moabites and Ammonites is not good. Their, their genesis, sexual relationship, 
and how the Israelites associate them with idolatry, ungodliness, and war. Something changes in the story of Ruth. Let's read the first four verses. Man, I wish, I wish we had more time. These four verses are just fun to, to, to look at. Maybe one of these days we'll go through Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine land. Remember, in the day judges, remember, uh, there it is, Judges 10. They, they are worshiping the gods of Moab and, and, and ben right? A man of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means uh, house of bread. So there is a famine in the house of bread. You see, see there's irony all over these opening verses. That's what I love, love about Ruth 1. He went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So notice here, the man in Bethlehem leaves the house of bread for the home of the offspring of ancestral rape. Okay? So you see, this ain't good, barely I say unto thee. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means my God is king. But my God is king, has left the land where my God is king to go, where my God is not king. Right? Baal's king, Astros king. And the name of his wife was Naomi, which means princess. And we're going to find out. She ain't much for princess in the story. Princess changes her name to bitter. And the names of his sons were Maul and Achilles, which means sick and dying. Well, guess what happens to sick and dying? They get sick and they die. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, 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 everything in the Bible says this ain't good. You don't go to Moab. You know those people. You know those people. Uh, verse 3 but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not to be used with Oprah. By the way, I do think she's named after Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malin and Kilian died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, everything we've been told to believe about the Moabites is bad. And everything about the Moabites in the Bible has been bad except one one person stands out you keep reading in, in chapter 1 right you remember what does Naomi decide to do I'm going to go back to the house of bread there's a famine here in Moab because I've been robbed of a husband and sons I'm going to go back to the house of bread and go back to Bethlehem to my family maybe they can help me out and she changes her name to, 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 to bitterness Mara and, and it's fascinating again if we had time we, we could look at it we're already out of time but um Ruth insists on going with her, right? Naomi says, look, you're young enough. Go get you another husband. Raise a family, all that sort of stuff. Don't worry about me. Orpah says, all right, right? I'll, I'll get on you know, my, my app and I'll choose a man. We'll go get married, right? Ruth says, no, 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 no. That's not the way this is going to roll. I'm going to stick by your side. You remember the famous line Ruth has? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But the problem with the story of, of Ruth is they are destitute so they go to Bethlehem, the house of bread, for refuge. What do they find there? Well, Ruth starts to provide for her and Naomi. You're two widows. And the way she does it, and the way they did it back then, was if you were poor, the way you were fed, the way welfare happened was it required you to gather up wheat. And so as the shears were going out, they would leave behind enough for, for, for the poor to come, and they would at least have wheat, right? It may not be much, may not be certainly the most that the farmers would bring, but to be enough, and she would spend all day gather enough so they can have bread in the house of bread. And, and eventually one day, 
this young, wealthy, attractive man. I'm sure he had a nice beard. He, he kept up with, you know, not one of those raggedy beards, but a nice beard. Maybe he was dark hair, maybe long blonde hair, Fabio, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure he had large muscles. I'm sure he was tall with a deep voice, like a Johnny Cash voice. You know what I'm talking about, ladies. That guy you've always dreamed of, but you settled for your husband. You know what I'm talking about, right? I had that Johnny Cash voice in puberty. My wife loved it, except for when it squeaked. She didn't like that part. I don't have that Johnny Cash voice anymore. But she meets Boaz, and, and it just so happens, the story tells us, he's a kinsman redeemer. Notice, kinsman redeemer. He's related to Naomi. But the problem is there is someone who's closer in relation. And so Boaz goes to law, and, and in the story, every time Ruth is mentioned in the court of law, he says, look, Boaz, you realize if you do this, you get the land, you get the property, you get Naomi, and oh yeah, you get stuck with that Moabite. You know the Moabites, right? And what does Boaz say? That's why I want the land. Because I want the Moabites. I'm a, I'm a redeemer. And so, turn to chapter 4. This is really the main point of the entire story. Chapter 4, verse 17. Ruth has a baby, right? So what do all the women do, right? Well, of course, Ruth posted on the internet, naturally, right? Everyone comments. He gives a thousand comments. Oh, how sweet and cute. Isn't that adorable? And, and then, you know, the, uh, uh, Naomi, she's now Naomi, not Mara. She's not bitter anymore. She, she comes out and she's like, I got a baby. She goes, oh, what's that monkey, right? Hey, everyone, look, 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 look at my baby. The monkey from Lion King, to be clear. And uh, the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Of course, a son hasn't been born to Naomi. Seed language, isn't it? It's a grandson. They named him Obed. Oh, by the way, he's a father of Jesse. He's a father of David. Here's the full line. These are the generation of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Minadab. Minadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. What do you think is the whole point of the story of David? Or the story of Ruth? It's about David. And maybe we can take this story farther because it ends with the mention of David, which in the next story is about how a little shepherd boy who is the great-grandson of a Moabite rises to be king. And not just any king, the king, the shepherd king, the royal priests. But of course, he has his failures. So what is it that we hope for in the end? You know where the story goes, don't you? Matthew chapter 1, or, or Matthew chapter 1, verse, verse 5. Simon Father Boaz by Rahab. Oh, remember that story, a prostitute. We talked about that. Was it last year or two years ago we, we did the genealogy of Jesus? Boaz, father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. This is the line of our Messiah. So really, what is, what is it that we are, we are to gather here? It's quite simple, that if God can redeem Ruth, you know, one of those Moabites, he can redeem anyone. We are not defined by how our story began. We can be defined by what Christ has done in our behalf. That's really what we ought to see in the story of Lot and his daughters. Any questions we can dodge?
All right. Don't you just love how well this Bible is just written? Man, it's just, it's just right there. When I started reading this story, I'm like, what in the world are we going to do with incest? Then you realized, oh, yeah, it's the story of Jesus, isn't it? Story of Jesus. All right, let's come up here and I tell you, we're, we're running late. Let's just stand up and, and pray because we're, we're already past.